All right, good morning, everyone. as we're going through here and I don't keep up with that just kind of get my attention I can't see the thing from here so anyway all right Hebrews book of Hebrews where we are we we started last week we kind of just started anyway in in a kind of an introductory look at the book of Hebrews which um, of course has been called numerous you know given numerous names but it is a unique book uh, and, and um, a very Christ-centered book, a very Christological book. In fact, I, I mean, it's just saturated with doctrine about Christ. And much of the content of the book of Hebrews is kind of unique to it as far as compared to other uh, books of, of the New Testament, what they teach us about the Lord Jesus. And um, uh, it, it's, again, it's a very, very special book. Um, it's about the Lord Jesus and how he is superior, all right? Um, obviously, there's a connection with Jewish people, all right? You can kind of see that in the name. It's the epistle to the Hebrews, all right, to, to Jewish people, although uh, obviously it is not un, uh, unrelated to anybody else as well, but I don't know. I have no idea how to make it bigger. So. So the okay, the arrows are gonna advance. Okay. All right. So I'll just forget this then. Now I can't see. <laughs> anyway, I'm here by the window at least, so that helps. <laughs> Anyway, uh, hard to make everybody happy, isn't it? I tell you what. <laughs> I have to wear one of those lights right here, you know. Oh, my. Anyway, so Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Well, I want to ask you a few kind of review introductory questions here this morning. Um, before we read, we'll read chapter 1. We'll, we'll just go around and let everybody read. In fact, I'll not read, let you all read, but... 14 verses, so everybody should get at least one shot there um, for now. Um, and we may be looking up probably other scriptures. Some of them won't be on the, uh, the PowerPoint, so uh, we'll just ask for those as the time comes. Some of them maybe we'll all turn to them as well. But uh, one thing you'll find out as we go through Hebrews, Hebrews quotes or refers to, goes back to the Old Testament, a lot, all right? In fact, just in chapter 1, you're going to see numerous quotes, references to the Old Testament, all right? But before we get into chapter 1 specifically, you remember last week, I was trying to paint the broad picture for you of the book of Hebrews, and uh, we, we put three key words, I believe we wrote them on the board, um, and, I, and actually, let me pause for just a second, we passed out... Uh, 
a handout that has uh, an outline for the whole book in it. Um, if you did not get one and want one, you can let me know afterwards and I'll try to bring you one next week. I don't have any uh, other copies with me, but uh, we can make sure we can get you a, a copy of that. Um, but I think it's important, at least I, I, my goal, I try, when I think of a book of the Bible, I try to be able to think through what the book's about, the presentation of the book. Again, the Bible's not just a random collection of unrelated writings and so on, all right? I mean, there's, every book has a specific purpose, a message that it's giving, and uh, everything in that book contributes to that specific message of that book. And again, the book of Hebrews is, is a book that's demonstrating the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three key words that, uh, that I was talking about, that I was saying, you could, you could think about the content of the entire book of Hebrews in three words, if uh, you want to look at it that way, all right? Anybody remember what those are before I put them up here? All right, the person of the Lord Jesus, His superior person, the, His superior priesthood, and then principle. And, and again, for sake of alliteration, keeping them all P's, that might not make as much sense, but by principle, what we mean is the principle of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So his, his person, and uh, again, that's, that's a uh, very general, but a very uh, synopsis of what the book of Hebrews is all about, and if you can remember those three words and then start, there, there's obviously other details you can fill in underneath those. But if you can think of those three words, you can think of what the book of Hebrews is about, how its, how its flow goes. It, it begins talking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for several chapters. And again, not getting specific verse numbers and so on that, but basically the first four chapters emphasize the superior person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next, what, five through ten, so that's uh, six chapters. Next six chapters emphasize the superior priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, been, it's often been said that the Lord Jesus, in his ministry, he carries out three um, uh, offices, that of prophet, priest, and king, and no other portion of the Bible treats the priestly work of the Lord Jesus like the book of Hebrews does. And, uh, and it's very unique in, in that way as you will see, hopefully. But then thirdly, in chapters 10 through 13, you have the principle, the, the principle of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is superior because uh, without that, obviously, you can't have a relationship with God uh, and, and can't live the way God would have us to. It's all about faith in Him because of who He is and what He's done. All right, and that, that is the basis for for faith in Him. All right, so this morning, as we get started, let's go ahead and do this. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll read. Uh, I'll ask Pastor uh, Brinker to start, and then we'll just go around. I'll, I'll stay out of, of the initial reading, but uh, let's have a word of prayer first, and then we'll, we'll just jump right into the reading of chapter 1, all right? So, Father, this morning, as we look at this wonderful portion of Your Word, we just uh, ask that You'd help us, help us to set aside distractions and uh, many things that could be on our mind and, and focus on you and your word and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, as we begin really looking at the content of the book of Hebrews this morning, 
help us to understand uh, what your word's teaching and uh, help me to be able to be clear and, and concise and, and uh, uh, just conveying it this morning as well. But we need your help, and we uh, just pray that you would be honored and glorified, that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up in our hearts and minds. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Go ahead. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made so much better than the angels, as as he hath by inheritance of David obtained a more excellent name than they. For under which of the angels saith he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, Who maketh his angels spirits? And his ministers proclaim a fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast weighed the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said, He at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for that then who shall be heirs of salvation? All right, we uh, talked about these three words that, that uh, you can think of for the three main parts of the book of Hebrews. First, the person of Christ, chapters 1 through 4, basically, and it begins with, it's interesting to me, I was thinking about this yesterday some, that every presentation that I know of in the scriptures, I'll caveat it with that, all right, that I know of, um, every presentation of the person of the Lord Jesus that speaks of his, his deity and his humanity, his deity is always treated first. It's always presented first. And, and uh, obviously that, is, that makes sense. It's reasonable to think of because, number one, he's always been God. There's never, you know, I mean, he, he has always existed. He always has been God. He is God. There was a point in time in history when he became a man. And since that time, he is God and man. That is... Not an easy thing to just sit here and just rationalize out, but that is how the Bible presents the person of Christ. And so, first off, in that is the, um, uh, the superior person of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapters 1 through 4, and chapter 1 emphasizes his deity. Chapter 2 will emphasize his humanity, and then there's a principle of faithfulness that's emphasized about the Lord Jesus after that which we'll, we'll get to. But chapter 1 here, 
which we just read, let's try to just uh, uh, notice what this chapter is presenting about the Lord Jesus Christ and His person, right? And first of all, again, His deity. That's everything in chapter 1 is emphasizing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice, when, when the, the reading started there, there's not a typical uh, greeting or salutation, if you want to say, in the book of Hebrews like most of the other books of the New Testament have. Uh, there's not one here. The writer just kind of, he just gets right into it. In fact, in verse 1, you'll see uh, that the, the two, uh, let me try to word it this way, the two basic assumptions of all theology, everything we know about what the Bible teaches about God, are mentioned in verse 1. Not mentioned in a way you might think of, but uh, and that is the first assumption is that God exists, and secondly, that God has spoken. He has revealed Himself to us. Apart from that, we could not know God. We might know there is a God. In fact, there is, you know, God, God has revealed Himself as far as the fact that He is in many different ways, but to know who He is and know specifically about Him, we have to learn that from what He tells us about Himself. We can't go out here and look at trees and, and start imagining things about God. And uh, man's imaginations, by the way, is what has caused uh, the problems in this world. There's a lot of vain imaginations, right, about God, uh, about you know, religious things and so on in this world. But God exists and God has spoken, all right? But the superior person of Christ, His deity, is what's treated in chapters 1 through 4, or chapter 1 is deity, but in, in these first four chapters, you can see that Christ is compared to a number of things, and I'm not even going to uh, get into that right now, but specifically at first, you can see He's, he's compared with the prophets of old, and then in, in chapter 1 also, He's compared with the angels, but speaking of His deity, the person of Christ, His deity, the fact that He is God, all right, first of all, and I hope this works right, and by the way, I don't have the, uh, I couldn't figure out, I, I used to be able to do it, and it's been so long since I've set up a PowerPoint thing, I don't remember how to set up the animation, animation so everything comes in a line, but Andy's going to help me with that after, uh, so hopefully, so now you're going to have more than what we're talking about at first on the screen here, but anyway, uh, again, there's three key words, really, you can think of in chapter one, talking about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we can see his superior revelation in verses 1 through, three, 1 through 3. Now, revelation, by this, we're not talking about the book of the Bible called Revelation, but the fact that God has revealed, all right? God has made known. God has given man uh, knowledge and information about himself. He's done that throughout history in many ways. And notice how verse 1 starts out. He says, God who at sundry times, so in other words, in, in a variety of times, over a period of time, maybe you could say, and in divers' manners, in a variety of ways, many different ways, God has spoke, He spake in times past unto the fathers. Now, in one sense, when you're talking about the Jews, the fathers refer specifically to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, there's another way generically speaking, it's kind of like just everybody before, the, you know, the forefathers, so to speak. They're progenitors, and 
and, and so on, those that have been before. Um, and probably that's what's, what's in view here, not specifically just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although this would be true of them, but it's true of others as well, right? But God spake to the forefathers in times past through prophets. That's the primary way that God spoke, uh, revealed himself, was giving information to men that he chose who were specifically used of him to communicate his message, all right? And that was only done in bits and pieces. There's no one prophet that God gave everything to, all right? None. I mean, you could think of some, say, for instance, Moses. I mean, God gave Moses a whole lot of information. Perhaps we could say, you know, much more than most other prophets, uh, but Still, what God gave Moses was just a fraction, a portion of all that God wants to reveal to man, all right? And, and the point here is, okay, uh, obviously the prophets were important to the Jews, all right? Very, I mean, their, their, uh, their scriptures, all right? The Old Testament is, is based on God revealing himself through the prophets, all right? Uh, and, and the prophets were very important to the Jews, but... Even those men, and even all of them together, don't hold a candle, if you want to say, to what God has revealed about himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 goes on to say, uh, or one, into 2, rather, half, all right, God spoke in times past by the prophets, right? But in these last days, it says, he's spoken unto us by his Son, all right? So, the Son of God has is, is God's spokesman to man now. And he, his, his revelation of God is superior to all the prophets, all the prophets combined, not just any individual prophet, but to all of them combined. Again, because men could only communicate pieces, and I'm not sure what I have. Uh, that's not it. Men could only communicate pieces of God's revelation to man. I don't, I don't think any man could handle it all, for one thing, all right? But I mean, but God only, he gave bits and pieces here and there, again, through ver, a variety of men, from Adam. You know, that's where it began. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, we have God giving Adam, if you want to say, the, the initial law. Don't eat of that tree. I mean, it's interesting how God worded it, right? And then how Satan twisted it and used it against. So, you mean God doesn't let you eat of everything? Well, God said, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat, except for just this one. I mean, but obviously, uh, we know what happened there. But, but, but from Adam on, all right, God has communicated bits and pieces to men. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, God has fully revealed himself. In other words, in the Lord Jesus, you can know everything about God. He has fully revealed God, and only God's Son could fully declare God. That kind of makes sense in a way, all right? You know, uh, people could send spokesmen out to, to reveal them, but when somebody sends his Son, there's something special about that. And the Son represents the Father in a way that no others could. And so, uh, it, 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 again, it, it makes a lot of sense there when you think about that. 
I, I was thinking, I wrote down a reference here in Matthew 21, that parable of the vineyard, you remember, where it says the man uh, planted a vineyard, and, uh, and then he went away, and then he sent servants to come and uh, check on the people that he had left to, to take care of the vineyard and, you know, to, to work it, and then obviously to get a profit and, and, and so on. And, and these people, they, they killed the various people that he sent, and then it says, last of all, the man said, I'm going to send my son because they'll reverence him. I mean, in other words, in that parable, the, the ultimate ambassador, if you want to say, that he could send for himself was his son. And, uh, uh, but again, the son speaks of a, a, uh, a greater significance, of course, than just the prophets. Only God's son could fully declare God. Um, we probably don't have time because uh, we don't have time, but John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, read that sometime later, and, and that just reiterates the fact that God the Son came to reveal, to declare God the Father, to declare all about God. Only Jesus could fully declare God and His message. Um, and he says he's done that in these last days. And, and again, that doesn't mean that it's like the very end of time as such, but you'll notice throughout the New Testament that the New Testament is considered this, this time since the Lord Jesus came to the earth and so on. This is considered the last days in a broad sense. And so uh, there's, there's other things that could get more specific about that. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, he has come and declared God. He's revealed God. Now, there's seven descriptions that are given about the Lord Jesus here in his revealing of God. Notice, and we'll kind of hurry through these. You could park on these and spend a lot of time, okay? But verses 3 through 4, there's seven descriptions about him here. Notice who, verse 3 starts out with the word who, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All right, so seven descriptions. All right, I think I have them on that slide right there. All right, so, and these are right there in verses uh, 3 uh, uh, actually begins in verse 2, sorry, verse 2, 3, and 4, but seven descriptions. The first is that Jesus is appointed the heir of all things, all right? In other words, I mean, everything, you could just kind of think of this description as this, everything rightfully belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the rightful heir, inheritor, owner of everything, all right? Uh, now, consider how these, these descriptions, they all interrelate to each other, of course, considering his person, all right, and the fact that he's God. You realize that really this, this is a description that could only be true of God, okay? God's the only one that really deserves everything, all right? Uh, but then secondly, Jesus is the creator, the maker of the worlds. And, and the way the verse says, the worlds, all right? Uh, and by the way, the word worlds here, there's several words in the New Testament rendered world at different times, uh, but this particular word is, is definitely going beyond like the physical creation. The idea here is, in fact, this, this, this word is sometimes like rendered 
ages and, and things. It, it's the idea that everything, everything, not just the, like the physical things that God created, but the whole plan of God throughout all of the ages. It all is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the creator, the maker of all of those. He's the one that's behind it. All right? Uh, obviously, God the Father is, and, and God the Spirit has a, has a role in that as well. But here, this passage expressly, because, the, again, the purpose of this passage is, is demonstrating that Jesus is superior in his person because he's God. All right? He's not just a man. He's God. All right? Um, and think about this. God could become a man. He did. But no man can become God. It, it's impossible when you take what the Bible says about God. God has to have always been God. For him to be complete and perfect as the Bible describes him, he could never be anything less than what he is. It's impossible for man to become God. It's interesting how many religions and belief systems emphasize somehow or another that man can grow into being God or become God someday and and so on, uh, but impossible, all right? But Jesus is the, he's the creator, the maker of the world. Jesus Christ is the very uh, brightness of the glory of God himself in, in uh, verse 3 here, who being the brightness of his glory. I mean, the idea here is it's, it's like he's the, the radiance of God, the majesty. The word has to do with a great a fulgence of light. I mean, just a, a, a you know, like an explosion, a brightness of light. Uh, it, it, but it speaks of glory, His Majesty. All right. Uh, but it says He's the brightness of His glory, of God's glory. All right. Second or the the what fourth one now? Jesus is the express image of the person of God. He's the absolute expression of the collective attributes of deity. In other words, everything about God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every attribute of God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God the Son. He has all the attributes of God the Father. He is uh, the absolute expression of all the attributes of God. All right, fifth... All right, you have Jesus Christ is the sustainer of the universe. He's the upholder of all things. Notice that's what in verse uh, 3 here as well says, uh, who being, now, now I'll make a comparison here in just a minute of, these, of, of some of the seven here, but he says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. All right, according to this verse, Jesus is the one that's keeping everything going. He's the one that holds it all together. Without him, this world would fall apart, like a, kind of like a, you know, a motor that would just fly apart. The parts would just, there's you know, nothing else to hold them together. He's what keeps everything together. In spite of you know, what man is doing and what Satan's trying to do, and that, Jesus will never be thwarted. All right? He's the one that, that keeps it all together. Of course, in Colossians 1, it talks about he, by him all things were created, but also by him all things consist. Very similar statements to what we see here in Hebrews 1 uh, with this. But um, he's the sustainer, the upholder of the entire creation of God, all the universe, all right? Uh, but notice here it says he does that. It's not like he's putting forth an effort to do it. 
It says, by the word of his power. I mean, it's like by his thought and just saying the word. Now, it's interesting because in Genesis 1, how does it tell us that God created the worlds? Every, every instance on every day, it says, and God said, fill in the blank, you know, let there be, all right, or let this, or, I mean, it, it, it's like, okay, God didn't, I mean, he didn't, it's not like he had to labor. He had to put forth effort, uh, you know, um, I, I think it's fair to say, and again, you know, it, it's one of those things that we're trying to use our vocabulary, our understanding of things to describe an infinite God who's way beyond us, all right? But, you know, it's like God didn't even have to have a, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit didn't have to get to ha together and have a brainstorming session in order to plan the world. You know, it was no, no effort. No, I mean, I, again, I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's just, it, it's beyond our ability to understand, but it just, boom, spoke and it's there. And, and the Bible says here, another, that by the word of his power, that's, he holds it all together. There. He just said, this is what it's going to be. doesn't matter who tries to thwart it, who tries to do what, this is what it is. And there are numerous, numerous things, if I could word it that way, that God has decreed that will be. And there is no way that man, Satan, whoever can thwart that. Now, God in his sovereignty, much to the chagrin, if you want to say, of the Calvinists, God in his sovereignty has given man some sovereignty some autonomy. God has said, okay, I'm going to allow you to make decisions. But God has always set the parameters, if you want to say, of those decisions. I mean, man can make choices, but he can't, for instance, can't control the consequences. You can see that to begin with in Genesis 2. God told Adam, he gave him a very simple law, right? Don't eat of that tree. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. All right, he laid out a choice and even told Adam the consequence. Adam made a choice, but he couldn't change the consequences. So in other, in other words, you can think of it with every choice, there's preset consequences that go with those choices. All right, and there's, there's obviously a lot of uh, preaching that could go on with that particular statement. But, but Notice here, and I, I got to hurry. Well, we might not get through chapter one anyway. But this is this to me. This what I what I want to point out here is very important. Okay, uh, in all of these descriptions, notice it began saying that that he has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. He's the he's the superior revelation, and superior is not even an adequate word. Okay, I mean. He is the ultimate revelation of God, the Lord Jesus, all right? And by him, these things happen, all right? He's, he's the heir of all things. He's the one that made the worlds. He is, you know, who being the brightness, notice the, the way this is worded, and the express image of his person. He's upholding all things by the word of his power, all right, and what I'm trying to stress here is, notice the change in the wording here. 
This is still giving descriptions of the Lord Jesus, but now in verse 4 it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the two other descriptions given here are that he has purged our sins, all right? And obviously there's a whole lot that could be said about this, but I think everybody here understands at least the, the whole big point of this, all right? Through what Jesus has done, he's, he's made a way that we can be cleansed of our sins, that we can have a relationship with God. He is the Savior, all right? And that's going to be emphasized a lot more in chapter 2. But because he's God, okay, this is part of him being God, he has provided a way that man could be saved, all right? And then after that, he ascended back to heaven and took his rightful place back at the right hand of the throne on high, right? The majesty on high, all right? And he sat down for two reasons, we could say, or at least two reasons, all right? One, because that's his exalted position. That's the position that you see of God the Son demonstrated in heaven in the scriptures. He is at the right hand of the throne of God, all right? Um, but also not just his exalted position, one of honor and authority, but because he ended his project. And again, alliteration, sorry, but uh, he, in other words, he sat down because he finished his work. He's not, well, we'll get into some of this more later in uh, chapter 7, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, but he is not continuing a work as such. His work in salvation is finished, right? It is, he's done everything that is necessary to appease God on behalf of man so that man who, you know, believing sinners can be saved and God can still be just. God doesn't compromise anything when he saves someone because of what the Lord Jesus has done, okay? But here's, here's the thing I wanted to point out. In every one of these other instances, it's just talking about this is his being. This is, and then it says what he said, all right, because he's, by the word of his power, he's upholding all things. But when it comes to him purging our sins, do you, do you notice the difference? He had to take action. He had to actually do something. And to me, that demonstrates the seriousness of sin. Sin is so serious that God couldn't just speak and it was taken care of he had to actually something had to be done he had to actually intervene somehow for man so that man could have so that god let me word it this way so that god could justly forgive sinners no sin i mean god and sometimes we just we just forget this but god is so holy he cannot, I mean, there's, you know, he can't just overlook anything about sin. Everything regarding sin, every specific sin, but everything with sin has to be dealt with somehow or another, or God is not just and righteous and holy. And the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, God has provided that. But it required God doing something. He couldn't just speak and say, okay, I forgive you. He wouldn't be just because that would be because sin had to be taken care of. He, he would be forfeiting his righteousness in doing that. 
So sin had to be taken care of. He had to do something. He had to take action so that sin could be dealt with and man could have the possibility of having a relationship with him. That's, that's big. That's serious if you think about it. But it's because of how serious sin is. And it was so serious that it required the sinless Son of God to do what was necessary. I'd like to dwell on that a lot more, but that, that's, I mean, if you really think about that, that's, that's big time right there. But he sat down, all right, after he did what was necessary to provide a way that God could justly forgive sin. See, that, I mean, that's the thing you've got to keep in mind. God had to have a way to forgive sin without compromising his righteousness. It had to be justly taken care of, and only in the Lord Jesus Christ could that be done. He had to leave heaven, take on humanity, come here, and, of course, he lived perfectly, did, you know, carried out the will of the Father in every detail, but he gave himself as a sacrifice so that God could justly say, okay, sin is taken care of in a just way. I am appeased because of what Christ has done. It has satisfied my holiness. And then the Bible teaches that God will welcome, he welcomes sinners who come to him through Jesus Christ because Jesus is the basis for that. Without that, there would be no way to be right with God. No way. All right, so his... All of this deals with his superior revelation, but notice also, I'll try to give these to you real quick here, two other principles that you see in chapter 1 that are emphasizing his deity and his superior person, all right, is his superior relationship. Notice verse uh, 4, <coughs> the emphasis changes off of Christ being compared to the prophets to now Christ being compared to the angels, all right? Notice verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten of the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, all right? So here, I think you can see the relationship is what's emphasized, all right? The angels belong to God, right? And consistently in these several verses, you can see a relationship that the angels have to God referred to. They are his ministers, his servants, all right? And by the way, that's a privileged thing. They are very privileged to have that opportunity to serve God. But only Christ is the Son. Big difference. And, you know, you think of it in, in uh, biblical times with a, a household like that of, of, you know, somebody who owned much, right? He had servants. But he, if he had a son, that son's not a servant. Book of Galatians makes that comparison, you know, and, and so on. But, uh, but the Lord Jesus is the son. In fact, you see that in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he, 
as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What name's that? Well, there's four, five, uh, maybe six names. I, got, I don't have four names that are specified here about the Lord Jesus, really. All right. But unto which of the angels did God ever say, thou art my son? What's the answer to that? None. He's never called an angel his son. All right. And never will. All right, because they're not his son. All right, but unto them, he hasn't said that, but now he's quoting from Psalm 2 here. And this is where you'll see, beginning in verse 5, there's just references to the Old Testament one after the other right here. All right, so unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's from Psalm 2. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And I believe that's from Psalm 89. And it's also a reference to the words that, da- that, uh, that God, through Nathan, gave to da- uh, David in that Davidic covenant, all right, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, where he's talking about the son of David. Would be, is, would be, God would call him his son forever. All right, it's obviously not just talking about Solomon there. It's talking about the Lord Jesus being David's seed, all right, the Messiah, but uh, Verse 6, again, when he bringeth in the first begotten. So the first, the first name, all right, again, four names here, son. That's one of the names that's specified here about the Lord Jesus. Numerous times here he's referred to as the son, all right, God's son. Now, all Christians today, all New Testament believers are referred to as sons of God, children of God, all right, but that's different. This is the son of God. There's only one. That's the Lord Jesus. All right, but the son, and then you'll see the first begotten mentioned in verse six. You'll see, um, well, and again, when he bringeth the first begotten in the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. Again, if Jesus isn't superior to the angels, why did God say, let the angels worship him? They can only worship God, so he has to be God, okay? Uh, Verse seven, and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. All right, again, he's saying the angels are servants, not son. All right, and then um, you see uh, in verse 8, but unto the son he saith, thy throne, what's the next two words? O God. All right, again, so the son is God. All right. Uh, And then you see in verse 10, he's referred to as Lord, and thou, Lord, in the beginning. And by the way, each of these is a quotation from a psalm here, all right, Um, uh, which we've actually looked at most, a number of these passages anyway, and looking at some of the psalms. But you see his superior relationship, again, he's the son. He's not a servant, although he served God in doing his will and so on. He is the son, far different than any uh, any other, and we got to stop. All right, so we'll we'll try to pick back up on this uh, next time. But remember, chapter one, the deity of Christ is what's emphasized here, and you see numbers of ways that he's uh, referred to as deity, as God. All right, so let's go ahead and we'll uh, close with a word of prayer here. All right, thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word and just the the wonderful truths that are here and the wonderful things that we can see about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray again that you just help us to, to love and appreciate him more. 
uh, as we learn more about him. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.